0: Theology and apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. So this morning, we are speaking on Psalm 19, title of the message is God Speaks. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll get straight into the Word of God this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, just to open your Word. It's always just an honor and a privilege, Lord, to just to, we, we listen with expectation, Lord, of what you're going to do. We, we love your Word, Lord God, and we pray now that you will give the church ears to hear, Lord, what the Spirit is saying to the church bless this time, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the Psalms. Now I'm sure, as with probably everyone in this room, I love the book of Psalms. It's a collection of 150 beautiful poems, lyrics, songs, laments. Uh, there's so much variation in there. How many of us have come to the book of Psalms when we're feeling blue? How many of us have gone to the Psalms when we need a quick pick-me-up or an encouragement, a spiritual lift? The Psalms do all of that. Uh, Probably one of the best commentaries on the Book of Psalms is Charles Spurgeon's commentary, *The Treasury of David*, three-volume set. Uh, Let me read to you a quick. This is from the uh, from the introduction. He writes this. He says, "The delightful study of the Psalms has yielded to me boundless profit and ever-growing pleasure. Common gratitude constrains me to communicate to others a portion of the benefit, with the prayer that it may induce them to search further for themselves." And I hope that we can maybe have a little bit of that spirit as we go into this study this morning. The Book of Psalms are the ancient hymnbook of Israel. Quite often as you read the Psalms, it's easy to sort of imagine yourself entering into one of the, the ancient worship services of Israel. You'll notice that a lot of these Psalms will have musical introductions on the top of them, and they were obviously sung in the worship services of ancient Israel. They were also the hymnbook of the early church. One of the things I have in slightly geeky element of my life is I collect old Bibles, I have quite a few very early Bibles. One of my prized possessions is a 1606 Geneva New Testament. Um, and in the back of this New Testament, it has the Book of Psalms. And you'll notice it's the Book of Psalms, but actually within the printed text, they have musical notations all throughout. Now, I've tried to get people to play them, and they tell me that they're not quite the same as um, of the sort of music notes that we have today. They were more chants, notes for sort of vocal chanting and that sort of, and that sort of a thing. Um, but it's very interesting, and I love reading through them, and you can see the ones that have the most notations for them, obviously the ones that were the big, the big finish. It's very, very interesting. And there's also some King James editions I have that do that. It was obviously very common. I think there's a lesson to be learned in that. Um, we must not neglect the Book of Psalms in our corporate worship and in our, in our personal reading. Uh, I think they are the, the most basic and earliest form. Well, not basic, but understand what I mean by that form of, of worship that we can give to God is praying and singing, singing the Psalms. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this, he said, Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure is lost to the Christian church, and with its recovery will come unexpected power. And that's why I love to see sometimes when our modern worship songs, don't get me wrong, I love a lot of the modern worship songs, but sometimes you find these ones where they, where they reproduce older hymns or where they reproduce the something straight out of the Psalms, and I always love, love it when we sing the psalms like that. Many of you will know that the psalms are brutally honest, as song lyrics often are. You, you have a sort of a license to be more raw sometimes in song lyrics. That's why they're so powerful. Even secular songs, you know, music speaks to us in quite profound ways. Sometimes, a, you know, a line of a song will bring back memories of distant times in your life, or all, all sad memories, joy. Music is powerful like that. And in the psalms, you'll see the whole range of human emotions are covered. Pain, suffering, loss, frustration, joy, delight, family, God, worship. They're all in the Psalms. Heaven, hell, salvation, sin, humanity. The Psalms covers pretty much everything. There are different types of Psalms. You have praise Psalms, thanksgiving Psalms. You have complaints in the Psalms. You have laments. You have royal Psalms. You have messianic Psalms, worship Psalms, wisdom Psalms. They're just so rich that, again, I just encourage us, Let's never neglect the book of Psalms in our worship and our personal devotions. Now let's turn to Psalm 19, which is where we're going to be looking this morning. Psalm 19 is actually one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 119 is my ultimate favorite Psalm. It's all about the Word of God, but that's way too long for a Sunday morning, if any of you have read that. Psalm 19 is like a sort of condensed version of that, so we're going with Psalm 19. Now, I find this an intensely theological psalm. That's another reason why I like it. We're going to see David explain the two ways that God communicates information about himself to mankind. You'll often hear the question, why does God not reveal himself more clearly? It's it's usually a question that you will get from sort of a skeptical audience. Why does God not appear in the sky and just show uh, show his existence? There are many answers we can give to that. Obviously, one being God is not trying to compel us to believe in his existence. He was wanting to woo us into a relationship with him. It's it's a different sort of, you know, we can acknowledge his existence like the demons do and Shudder, but can we be wooed into accepting that sacrifice and coming into that relationship with him? It's different. He gives us enough to believe and to have the faith to go further like that. Psalm 19 is one of these elements that explains this for us. The two ways God speaks. C.S. Lewis said of this psalm that I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And Lewis knew, knew his lyrics very well one of the greatest lyrics in the world. In this psalm, we see general revelation. That's a theological term, general revelation. This is that which can be communicated about God through the created order. That is general revelation. And then we have special revelation. And this is the specific knowledge of God that comes from the revealed truth in Scripture. We're going to see both of these in this psalm. Now, of course, I'll just qualify that by saying I believe that general revelation is always subordinate to special revelation. We must remember that we are looking at a fallen and cursed creation in some respects. A lot of people make that error as almost making general revelation a 67th book of the Bible. I believe that is a mistake to do that. However, there is still enough and plenty of things that we can glean from general revelation about the character of God. There are some powerful observations. Now, if any of you are into Christian apologetics, that's the art of defending the the Christian faith, you'll know that the, the general looking at creation is some of the foundation of many of the arguments for God's existence. We'll touch on one of them briefly this morning. Let's read verses 1 to 6 together. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In these first six verses here, we almost have a poetic introduction to general revelation. Of course, verses 1 and 2 are probably the most well-known verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Now the heavens here, this is obviously, I believe, this is referring to you know, space, sky, everything that we see when we look up. It reveals knowledge night by night. Now, many of us appreciate this. Remember, this is written, obviously, in the time of, time of King David, but we all appreciate this concept. Many of you probably experience when you've been outside on a very starry night. One of those, you might not get that so much here, but where I am in the country a little bit more, there's less light pollution. But uh, those nights where the stars are just out in force, and sometimes, I mean, when I'm getting home from Bible study and it's late, I just stand on my doorstep for a few minutes and just look. And the longer you look, the more you see, you will understand what I'm talking about. It's quite an awe-inspiring thing when we look at the creation and see what God has made. It can be quite humbling, too. It makes us feel very small in some respects. You'll even notice unbelievers, people who don't share a belief in God, will do the same thing, but usually they will then sort of personify Mother Nature or something like that, you know, they'll start sort of waxing eloquently about Mother Nature. And of course, really what they're doing there is it's a tacit admission that there needs to be some sort of creation or creator or a personal element behind such beauty. Um, but obviously they don't go that far. Now, a lot of questions come when we look up at the sky, we look at how small we are. What is man? What does it mean to be human? Uh, is there a meaning to life? All these sorts of things come from people looking up at the stars. These philosophy books are filled with these sort of questions. Now, I believe David was a shepherd. He spent countless nights out, looking, sitting, watching the flock, looking up at the stars, undoubtedly thinking things like this. It's probably in his mind when he was penning this psalm here. Now, David, notice, he doesn't just say the heavens tell of the existence of God. He's more theologically precise than that. He says the heavens tell of the glory of God. You see, the God who created these heavens is glorious. Now, the glory of God, this is the fullness of his being, the sum of all his divine attributes and moral qualities and infinite power. All of that is captured in the phrase, the glory of God. You see, David looks at the heavens, the stars, the sun, day and night, and he sees this glory of God. It's glorious in power because God has to be so powerful to create something so vast. He is glorious in his intelligence, having created something that is so intricately designed and he is glorious in his artistry because it's so beautiful, and he is glorious in his goodness and his kindness, having created something for all humanity to see and enjoy like that. This is natural revelation. Now we see this concept very clearly laid out in the New Testament. Book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20. Let me read it to you. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of, of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse now it always challenges me this verse the fact that that the author of Paul here can write about the fact that creation is enough to make people without excuse and we talk about why does God reveal himself he is in these sort of general revelation he is saying there is enough to posit my existence enough that I can condemn you by saying you're without excuse from that now that I find that challenging in many ways and you might ask so why is it that this question of god's um, you know evidence is raised so persistently and for me it speaks a little bit more that, that as many of you have, if you've engaged in these sorts of conversations it, it's not often actually about evidence or existence you know we are fallen creatures there is a spiritual element and there's a matter of will and heart and it's deep emotions deep pain on the broken of humanity that often keeps us from acknowledging god And uh, there are many statements I could read you by atheists where they will quite frankly admit that they do not want the universe to have a God because they do not want the universe to be like that. Because as soon as they admit that, they admit that there are obligations on them to respond to that. And they will not go any further than that. And I could read you three or four, I'm not going to do it now, but there are many atheists who have said that quite openly in their writings. Let's explore this a little bit. Romans 1.20, Psalm 19. They both point us back to the book of Genesis, in my mind, when they're talking about the heavens, the creation. This is, you know, Genesis 1 1, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a statement that is so rich, it's the the keystone of the capstone, foundation stone, you could say, of the entire Bible. You know, you, you really need to understand the message that we get from Genesis 1 1 as you progress through the Bible and learn more about the creator that is revealed through it. Heaven and earth had a definite beginning in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and this concept alone points to the existence of a creator and if like i say if you're an apologist you'll know this this is an argument known as what we call the cosmological argument a lot of people use this to great effect it's one of the most it's an argument based on probably the most established principle of logic science and reality and this is the law of what we call causality cause and effect An effect must have a sufficient cause. That is basically the the thrust of what this argument is built on. And the argument kind of goes a little bit like this. We'll lay it out for you. It's called the the cosmological argument. There's different forms of it. The most popular today is called the Kalam cosmological argument. People like William Lane Craig, uh, they they use this in their debates. um, But there are many different versions of it. Very simply put, it starts off with two premises and a conclusion. Uh, this is introduction to philosophy. This is what we call a sort of, a, uh, this is a logical argument, analytical philosophy. You have a number of premises, and then you have a conclusion. And the idea is, if your premises are logically tight, your conclusion naturally follows. For, for for someone to refute the argument, they must take issue with one of the premises, and otherwise they cannot refute the conclusion. So this is how it goes. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now that's fairly obvious because of the law of cause and effect. So not many people would really. Um, Take issue with that premise. The second premise is the universe began to exist, and therefore the conclusion is that therefore the universe has a cause. Now, obviously, verse two, uh, premise two, rather than verse two, premise two. Too too much bible. <laughs> premise premise two. The, <clears throat> excuse me. The universe began to exist is the one where people take issue. Now, let me just give you the Christian argument as we go from this. People who use this argument. They will then make a number of observations about this cause. They make the argument that the universe has a cause, and then they will make some observations from this argument about the cause, such as the cause must be outside of the space-time universe. In order to create it with a definite beginning, it must have existed outside of it. it must be, this cause must be transcendent, another way of sort of saying the same thing. It must also be immaterial because it created, at this moment, all material matter. It existed before the material universe. It must also be immensely powerful to create this universe. It must be extremely intelligent to create such a complex and finely tuned universe. And there's a number more of these. Now, as you go through all of these, you'll, you might notice that all of these uh, philosophical deductions from this argument all fit the creator God of the universe that we find in the Bible. And this is where the argument sort of progresses. Now. The standard belief before 1940 was that the universe was eternal. This was, this was the standard belief of cosmology. They called it st- the steady state model, all these different names for it. It needed no beginning, and it, didn't, it had no beginning, therefore it did not need a cause. This is what the, the scientific community, particularly the atheist community, liked to believe. Now, when Einstein was developing relativity theory, obviously he was the one who sort of came up with the fact that we have either an expanding or collapsing universe, which points to a definite beginning in time. Now even Einstein, the great Einstein, when he discovered this, he did not like the implications that that had, obviously because they pushed to this sort of Genesis-esque beginning. So even Einstein did something that a a scientist should not do. He introduced what they call the fudge factor now, which he basically fudged his equations, and he added a cosmological constant, as they call it, which was a way to sort of avoid this. Now he later admitted that was one of the worst mistakes of his life, because obviously other scientists got involved and the mathematics got checked, and it became uh, fairly obvious what he'd done. So that's the great Einstein. But since then, physicists have proposed scores of models that are basically an attempt to try and avoid a cosmic beginning. You know, if you actually read the history of 20th century cosmology, it is basically a series of failed attempts to avoid the beginning of the universe. And even today, we see this going on. You might think it's sort of obvious that the universe had a beginning today. A philosopher called Daniel Dennett came to fame with the Dawkins kind of crowd as being one of the new atheists. He says in his book, he says, the universe performs the ultimate bootstrapping trick and created it itself. Now, if you think logically about that, you, you cannot, to create yourself, you would need to exist prior to your own creation. It's just a logical kind of nonsense, really. Um, but that's a leading philosopher saying that. Lawrence Krauss, you may know him, he's an astrophysicist, again, very, very, very anti-Christian. He said he wrote a book called Universe from Nothing, where he uses quantum mechanics uh, to to basically argue that the universe just pops into existence from nothing. Um, Now, if you know, from nothing, nothing comes, uh, a song from Sound of Music, you might remember that, from nothing, nothing comes, I think that's quite true. And as you read his book, you'll realize he's being naughty. When he says nothing, he doesn't actually mean nothing. He means a quantum vacuum. There's other things that he He doesn't mean it in the everyday sense. So he's, be, he's being slightly cheeky with his words there. And we could go on and on with these models, all of them basically trying to avoid the most straightforward explanation, which we find in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is why there's a, a, an atheist, actually, uh, astrophysicist called Robert Jastrow. He wrote a very famous book called God and the Astronomers. And he has this quote in it, which is one of my favorite quotes. And he says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance, and he is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I love that. It's a very Obviously, he's just specifically referring to the beginning of the universe aspect. He wouldn't apply that in any other way, but I think it's a very telling quote. Now, remember, in the time of King David, there were only around sort of 10,000 stars that were obviously visible to the naked eye, and whether they could kind of count them in the same way we can, very unlikely. I don't think David had really any idea how vast the actual universe was compared to what we would have now. The closest star outside of our solar system, Alpha Centauri, It's four light years away from us. Four light years is nothing in sort of astronomical terms. If we were to try and drive there, it would take us 30 million years. That's how far far the distance is. Alpha Centauri is bigger than our sun. Our sun is massive. You could fit one million Earths in our sun. Just to give you a sort of rough idea of how the, the size of it is. If you look up, the farthest light that we can see in our galaxy comes from the Andromeda galaxy, which is the furthest one on the edge of the universe. Not the actual edge, but sort of metaphorically speaking. It's 1.5 million light years away, and it would take you 11 trillion years to drive there. We don't really have any kind of way that we can comprehend such sort of vast, massive universe like this. But what we can do (laughs) is think how glorious the God is who could create something like that with simply the word, and he spoke it into existence. That's when we say God is glorious in his power. That is what we're talking about. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Quite literally, for God, he can say that. And yet another thing that always amazes me is that this universe is so big, yet God declares that earth was made specifically for life as the setting for this cosmic plan of redemption and our pale little blue dot in the universe was where this drama would play out. Isaiah forty five eighteen, God says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. It says he established it. He did not create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And that's a very good statement of what scientists would call you know, the anthropo- anthropological constants of the world. Finally you know, this earth is specifically designed to maintain life. God made it like that because this is the word that He was gonna ultimately one day come become part of the human race and die on this earth to reveal us to him. There's one illustration that I always I can share my illustrations that I use overuse in my own church now because you, you guys won't have heard them from me, you might have heard them from Simon or other people. But one of my favorite ones is uh from occurred in 1968, and it's the story of Apollo 8. I just love this story. Apollo 8 was the first manned mission around the moon, where they actually went around the dark side of the moon and were able to sort of come across and see the Earth over the horizon rather than seeing the moon coming from that way. And one of the amazing things is that as Apollo 8 came around the dark side of the moon and they came to that image where they were the first humans, obviously. No one (laughs) except God had ever seen the Earth from this perspective, and there you get to see that beautiful sort of blue marble suspended just in that black canvas of space. It must have been just one of the most awe-inspiring moments that any human had ever seen at that point. And it always amazes me what, what they did at this time, these astronauts. And for me, this is why I believe America won, won the space race in some respects, because they had astronauts ready to do things like this. What were the words that were suitable for such an event? Would it have been a, a proclamation that this is just a product of random chance? Would it have been the proclamation that everything down in that little blue marble is just totally meaningless, a result, an end product of evolution, one day destined to be burned up in the fire death of the universe, as they say? No. What these scientists did is that they read from the book of Genesis, and they broadcast this down to Earth on Christmas Eve of all nights, and they read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. And they actually read through the entire chapter of Genesis 1 from space space down to NASA control. If you go onto the NASA archives, I've I've done it for some a book I was writing, read through thousands of pages because they don't categorize them very well at all. So like and they literally they 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 transcript every single moment of those trips. But if you get to the right page, it's like right in the middle, you can find where it, it details this whole point and you'll get to hear the introduction of of Aldrin and the, and all the astronauts and as they read, and at the end of it, obviously it's on Christmas, and he wishes everyone a Merry Christmas on that good earth down there. It's an amazing, and you can actually listen to it. I think they've got a, a clip of it on YouTube. It's quite awe-inspiring to do that. And this is, this is general revelation. It, it does proclaim the glory of God in many ways, and as Christians, we can use that. Okay, It's a very good conversation starter. Those sorts of illustrations, people are unaware of them. The, the US Postal Service actually released a stamp in honor of that event, and it's just a picture of, the Earthrise, earth they call that famous photo. It's got that on the stamp, and it just has, in the beginning, God, written on it. I have one stuck in my Bible next to it. Um, I, I, I used that illustration in my church one time. Like a week later, like four people came up to me and showed me their stamps that they'd got on eBay <laughs> afterwards. I was, quite, it was It was great. It's a great stamp. This is general revelation. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's really no simpler and more foundational statement to the Christian faith than this. But obviously, it's not enough. It's not enough. And now we're going to see the psalmist turn, and he starts telling us about special revelation. And he starts turning his attention to the Word of God. You see, in natural revelation, we can learn a lot about this God, these things that I've talked about, some of his qualities and his attributes. But it is special revelation that reveals his true character the fact that he's a loving God who wants to redeem mankind and have relationship with us. We find this from special revelation. Now the first six verses, you'll notice, as he's dealing with general revelation, the psalmist will use the Hebrew, the Hebrew name for God, El. This is a slightly more sort of generic name, if we could say that, God. And this speaks of what we learn from general revelation, why these people using the cosmological argument You know, you could get Muslims using the cosmological argument to the same effect, to to prove a creator. So that's why, you know, because those attributes would all be the same. That's why you need to take it further than that. And you need to include the the revelation that we have from special revelation in order to identify the correct creator, because we're not really interested in just proving a creator. It's a stepping stone, it's a starting point, um, particularly in in a sort of secular culture. But we need to go further than that, and this is what David does here. And in these next six or so verses, he changes. He no longer uses the Hebrew word El for God. He he changes and he uses the Hebrew name Yahweh, which is the covenant-keeping name, the the loyal covenant-keeping God of Israel. It's a much more personal, intimate name of God. And I think he does that theologically for a reason, to sort of highlight this distinction between what you learn from general revelation and what you're going to learn from special revelation. It's very interesting to see how he does that. And in these next verses, three verses now, we're going to see six titles for the Word of God, six descriptions of the Word, and six ministries of the Word. So let's read verses 7, 8, and 9 together. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. Amazing three verses there. And like I say, these three verses for me are really a summary of Psalm 119. He packs it all in together here. Let's go through and look at some of these. The law of the Lord. The law there, obviously the term Torah means teaching, instruction, guidance. We mustn't have this this view where we see law as this very sort of onerous thing that Jesus came to release us from, don't get me wrong, there's a truth in that, but, but we often make the mistake of discounting the whole of sort of law in the Old Testament in the fact that we're, we're, we're you know, freed from law. There's a, some distinctions you need to be careful of there. In this sense, this is just referring to teaching, guiding, and instruction. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives us all things. What does it say in Second uh, Peter? We have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that we need as we sort of, as pilgrims, we wander through this earth. It's totally sufficient for us in this life. Therefore, it needs no addition from human philosophy, science, or psychology. Not that you can't get benefits in some ways from those disciplines, but it needs no additions from them. The Word of God is able to guide us from a position of being lost, having no relationship with God, to a position of intimacy and fellowship with the Creator God. It reveals to us the plan of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus, and it tells us how to restore our relationship with Him. Think of the words uh, we find in 2 Timothy. 3, 14, and 15, just before we get that great verse about inspiration that everyone knows, 14 and 15 are often left off in the memory charts. It says this, but as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, listen to this, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing to Timothy here, obviously. From childhood, obviously his mother, his grandmother, taught him the word of God. And from these being acquainted with these scriptures, he was able to be made wise for salvation. The Bible is perfect, lacking nothing. Part of this is the effective power. The word of God can actually change us. That's what it says here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It revives the soul. If you listen to the testimony, if you read biographies and these sorts of things, men like Augustine, Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, often when you hear their stories, it was just one verse that pierced their heart so much that it caused them to repent and be saved. That's all it takes sometimes. Well, some of you have probably got stories. Just one verse, one sermon, one word. The word of God is living and active, and it can pierce your heart and do that. Let me share with you one of these conversion stories. In 1850, a 15-year-old boy was on his way to church and he was unable to get to his regular church because of the snowstorm that was happening at the time. So he ducked into a nearer Methodist church and in his own words, he recounts the event as follows. He says, I turned into the chapel and there were about 15 people or so in there, no minister. A layperson, took to the pulpit to preach and he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me, And be saved, all you ends of the earth, Isaiah forty five verse twenty two. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. He continues, "A," said he in broad Essex. Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort within yourselves. Then he looked under the gallery, and saw me as a stranger. He pointed at me, and he said, "Young man, you look very miserable." And we wouldn't like that, would we, in a sermon today? It wouldn't, that wouldn't fly in today's, today's standards. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And then this, this, this man recounts, he says, there and then, the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. That young man did look to faith in that moment and that was how the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, got saved. 15-year-old boy from a lay preacher simply repeating his text, (laughs) explaining it very simply. The word of God has power, revives the soul. Let's look at the next line. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And when it says sure here, this is the same sort of connotation as verified. It can be trusted. It has the meaning in some context of, of being a firm foundation. And I think in, as the word of God, we understand that, that connotation. You see, what the word of God reveals is utterly dependable. Therefore, placing your hope in it is wise. Now, we live in a time where I would say confusion reigns in our culture and in our world particularly. And I would say confusion really reigns because we are not standing on the firm foundation of the word of God, men are standing on the shaky foundation of the sand. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 7:24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And just notice, to be a wise man and to stand firm, you build your house upon the rock, upon that firm foundation. And it may not be popular, you know, Sometimes in culture it's been popular, it's been the thing to do. In Many times in culture it's not. But yet that is the firm foundation. That is what Jesus says is the definition of a wise man. It's not talking about your college degrees, it's talking about whether you base and your life on the foundation of the word of God. Foundation. He, Jesus goes on in Matthew, he says, And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And I like this, because many of us know that life is not simple, Life gets very complicated. Just being in church, you know this, with so many different people and personalities, the wider world, interacting with people, it gets very messy. The storms come in life. And Jesus is saying here, to get through those storms, you have to have a firm foundation. And I believe what, it, well, what he says, not what I believe what Jesus proclaims right here is that that firm foundation is his words. It is the word of God. That is the only firm foundation. He goes on, everyone who hears the words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. This is the same thought that the psalmist says when he says, you know, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. This is not kind of your run-of-the-mill sort of agnostic. This is someone who is specifically rejecting the word of God as a foundation, making a, a positive decision that that word of God is not what I'm going to build my life on. And this is what we see in our culture. Many of these sort of confusions that we see, these arguments, this sort of divided political culture that we have today, I believe much of it can be traced back to this. The two foundations that people are living in from these two antithetical worldviews and we're not speaking the same language and I believe there there are answers to this. Ultimately, I believe the church will be the answer to that or should be the answer to that. Not NGOs, not government agencies, not state. It'll be the church. In the sense that we have that foundation, we stand on it, and we can tell others to come and stand on it too. And then you will start to see the confusion clear. And history testifies to the fact that that is what happens when the gospel goes out in power. That is what always happens. That is what the Word of God does. You see, the Word of God is sure. It can be tested. It doesn't matter what it's addressing. It speaks of human nature. It tells us of good and evil. It speaks of justice and injustice. It speaks about life. It speaks about ethics. Sexual ethics, history, philosophy, biology, family, marriage, children, love, hatred, sin, redemption. Pretty much every emotion you can list is in the Bible at some point. You cannot say that the Bible is irrelevant to your life. The only people who say that really are people who have never spent time in it or are so predisposed to reject it for some other reason that they haven't given it a chance to do its work. But we all these are things that are common to man, believer or non-believer. You will go through these sorts of things. The Bible is the foundation and offers a sure word on all of them. And then it says, making wise the simple. Now, this means making wise unto salvation, pretty much like I read from that verse in Timothy. But it also means that after salvation that we are wise in how we view and understand the world. I believe this means that we then examine and analyze and make decisions based upon what we would call a biblical worldview. That is an understanding and a formulation of the ideas of how this world works and what we should do that are based upon that foundation. And what I see happening today, which is tragic, is that the church does not have a biblical worldview. I think something like 98% of Christians would fail a biblical worldview test. Therefore, what that really means is that when we are out there trying to proclaim that we have this sure foundation, In 98% of issues, we're actually not offering something different. We're trying to offer the same to show that we can be the same, and that is the fundamental categorical mistake of the church, I believe, because we are called to be a separate and distinct and a unique people. You know, they can (laughs) people can get that from the culture. I always find, find, you know, we're not going to compete with them with entertainment and Hollywood and all these sorts of things. What we offer is something very, very unique, and it is answers to life's problems. But we need to speak up with a voice that is clear and is distinct. And I believe that comes through having a biblical worldview. See, most people, we're willing to give everything over to the, to the school. You know, we'll let the schools teach them about biology and all these sorts of things, ethics and philosophy. All we need to do is just teach Bible, teach Bible. Now, I'm never going to denigrate teaching the Bible, <laughs> never ever. But there's a disconnect. And I see this in youth ministers. I do a lot of youth conferences and speak. To, I see this with the younger generations. They've never been taught To connect what we are hearing and telling them in the church, with what they are hearing through the rest of the week, which outnumbers it in hours—if you tot up the hours—but you know by ten to one probably—and there's a disconnect, and we're losing them because of that, because they're just not under. There's just a fundamental disconnect between making the word of God a living reality, and I believe this is this is a challenge for the church. And there was some real great stuff coming out recently. The church is waking up to this, and I see lots of good stuff coming out. With this now, but it's an area that we need to spend a lot of time in, making wise the simple. Now, simple, that's not a derogatory term that he's using here. That we 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 would all fall under that classification. It's really referring to someone whose mind is open. You've, you've spoken to some people who are just completely closed. You know, it's like speaking to a brick wall. There's just nothing getting in there. They are so against. Now, we might not be able to break down that wall. I believe God can always break down those walls, but. In some respects, when it says, "Making wise is simple," it's talking about people whose hearts and minds are opened are not prejudiced and are really not caught up in the idol of human reason or something like that. Let's look at the next segment. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And I believe this is right in the sense of being righteous in one sense, and this they have to be, because they come from a being who is himself righteous. This is one of the attributes and characteristics of God. And they give instruction for those in how to walk, how we should walk in righteousness. And obviously our righteousness comes to us from Jesus Christ, but then there is a responsibility placed on us to, to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. You know, this is, we don't want to be hypocritical in our faith. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but we own our mistakes and we confess them. We don't pretend they're not there. We don't, we don't have a mask on when we go out into the world. We don't go from Christian Huddle to Christian Huddle. We're supposed to, you know, we are the gospel that many people will read. Probably, probably the only one. I think it was Billy Sunday, wasn't it, who said that, you know, no one, many people probably won't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they'll all read you. So you may be the only gospel. That's why, in I think it's in one of the Corinthian epistles where it says that we are living letters, not written with ink, but written with the Spirit of God. That's a very powerful uh, image that you get there that our lives, what we do is important, what we say is important. Um, (laughs) And more recently, as an aside, it's one of my pet peeves here, I would say what we say or type online is very important because we are an online culture now. You you must, you know, the world has changed in many respects. Um, To deny that is just to be stuck in a past and and be irrelevant. I believe we need to be active in in these areas of communication. But in my experience, they put me off, you know, and it's Christian's. There's, there's a you know you, Twitter, Facebook, social media. It seems to be because you have a work. People just immediately you would never speak to someone face to face like you think it's okay to speak to someone on social media. And I see this on all the things that I read on social media. You know, I, I genuinely I don't read comments anymore on social media. They they annoy me too much. And that unfortunately I have to say is Christian conduct as well as, the, you know, I kind of expect it from from people who are taking issue with a Christian article or something like that you know that's what Jesus warned us would happen but our conduct in how we respond we can be firm we can stand up for the truth we can be definite we don't have to roll over but we have to have a measure of grace that is representative of what our master would have done that doesn't mean we roll like I said it doesn't mean we roll over and we don't have a, a, a firm foundation but it means we must not simply go along with the way everyone else conducts themselves it's that element of we are called to be a unique and particular people in that sense. We must have a different standard, and that standard, I believe, is what we find in the Word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, this, the, the word right there, it comes from a word that means straight, and straight is obviously opposed to something that is crooked. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, how do we know? You <laughs> wouldn't know if something's crooked unless you knew what the straight was. He uses that as an argument for, for morality, actually. This raises an issue of absolutes in our culture. You may have noticed that the loss of absolutes, I believe, is one of the biggest tragedies to befall our culture. People don't really know what right or wrong is anymore. People don't know what left or right is. People don't know what male or female are. And on and on it goes. These things are going to increase as society drifts away from the word of God. You'll see more and more of this confusion. It all stems, like I say, from that very simple issue of either standing on the rock or standing on the quicksands of human opinion, and that's where it comes from. And again, it's our duty to speak with love and grace, but also clarity, understanding that people may not want to know what we what we want what we say. They may not want to hear it, but in reality, you'll be surprised. There are more people who do actually want to hear it than you would think if you by just by watching the media. You know, it's often represented as. You know, you saw a lot of you probably saw the street preacher who got arrested recently in London. Famous video now that's gone right. He was begging the police not to take his Bible from him. Um, Happened just recently. And people, you read some of the comments that come from these articles, and people are just utterly appalled that this man would be standing on the street, um, sort of spewing his bile, as as many people called it. And if you were just to read these little comments, we live in our sort of online bubbles, that is the view you might think. And that you see what that does? Oh, man, I never want to share my faith in public if that's the sort of reaction I'm going to get. And it's very easy to let the fear sort of overcome you. But in reality, they represent just a very small and admittedly active online community, but they do not actually represent the majority of, of the public that you will meet. You will find that if you are actually out there talking with people or discussing and, and reading Slightly wider, many people do want to have open and honest discussions where you can do this and you know feed the word of God into people's lives. So, never be afraid. We have the word of God, it is sure foundation, and it does. If the precepts of the Lord are right and they do rejoice the heart. Now, when it says rejoicing the heart, many of us probably understand this from personal experience. Knowing the word of God, spending time in the word of God, having those moments where the Lord speaks to you when you're studying his word is joyful. You know, it strengthens your heart and it it encourages you in the Christian faith. Knowing what God says about these confusing issues in the culture also rejoices the heart because you see such confusion, but we do not need to be a part of that confusion because we have the sure word of God which we can base our lives upon. Remember, he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything that we would need to pilgrim through this world, to the celestial city, so to speak. We have. Let's look at the next one. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, fear here, I believe this is speaking of the aspect of the word of God that produces reverence and awe. You may have noticed this. Psalm 119, verse 38. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Establish your word. I think that's just such an important verse that we, that we probably should all memorize in, in our own lives. It is the word of God, as we spend time in it, that will produce reverence and awe for us in the Word of God. Okay? If we are too willing to speak of God in sloppy terms, you know, n- not to really get offended when people say, oh my God, all these little things that you'll notice, that, you'll, that you will meet in the culture. If you are not spending enough time in the Word of God, you will probably not really notice things like that as much. But as you spend time in the Word of God, you will gain a, a, a more reverential and awe-filled understanding of God. And you will notice these things much, much more. The fear of the Lord is clean. It is clean itself, but it will keep you clean, and therefore you can use it to clean others. We see this all the time in the Bible, the washing of the water by the word, it says in Ephesians. Psalm 119, how can a young man cleanse his way? By keeping it according to your word. Therefore, do not let my heart wander from your commandments. You see, this is just the psalmist's heart. I want to be clean. I want to live a life that follows you. How do I do it? By putting the word of God into my heart. Because that word of God is living. It is active. It will change cultures, but it will change you. And it will then you will then go on to change cultures so as you are transformed by the word of God through the power of his spirit. This is the word of God. And it says it is clean and enduring forever. Again, from Psalm 119, the word forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You see, I believe it, it is eternal. Now, you could say that you could kind of make a, an application of this. The word of God is forever. You can't deny it. People can burn every Bible, they could destroy every church, they could kidnap every Christian schoolgirl, they could purge their nations of Christians, they could ban the reading of the Bible in school, they could make quoting parts of it illegal in public, they can remove crosses from building, ban Christian unions, remove prayer from Parliament. It doesn't matter. They're all things that have happened in the last few years. They're from the news. Whatever sinful man will try to do, and Satan ultimately behind it, we know that the Word of God is eternal because it comes from a God who himself is eternal and therefore it will, have, it will never return void and it is living inactive and the word, and Satan will not stand against it because it is that firm foundation. It comes forth from a sovereign God who himself is eternal. Therefore, what it records is sure and right. The fear of the Lord is clean. Let's look at the next one. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, this is the summation. He really gives everything here. He's kind of starting to pull it all together now. The rules of the Lord are true. And again, I'd say this is the same. Same with the issue of absolutes in our culture. So the issue of truth in our culture is also a problem. You know, we're described as a post-truth culture now, aren't we? That means that we let our emotions make our decisions for us. We're not really interested in facts. Now, when that, that word was coined, post-truth, it was actually coined in response to the whole Brexit debate in this, in this country as a sort of political backhanded jab at those who would be against it. But it's kind of, sort of caught on, and it's a very good description of how people decide truth. You may have heard it said, it's really nice that you have your religion. I'm glad that that works for you and it's good. Well, that might be something that you're into. It's not necessarily the thing that I feel to me. Now, you know, we see it with the whole identity crisis going on with with young people at the moment, don't we? You know, it doesn't matter what the actual facts are. You should be allowed to identify with however you feel the truth is for you. And this sort of goes with the whole aspect that religion is something that must be kept private. Because it's a feelings-based thing, it's a personal decision, it's opinions, whereas in the realm of fact, we deal with in the secular context, we deal with different things. Don't fool for that. Okay? This, an, it's an absolute nonsense, to be quite frank, uh, if I could say it bluntly, and it's a lie. There are very objective truths that are <laughs> applicable to both man and woman saved or unsaved in this world. This is what Jesus says. John eight. You remember when he was standing before Pilate? He said, Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And he said, you say correctly that I am king. Now, if you ask most people why Jesus came, you'll get he died on the cross, came to die on the cross, died for our sins, and all correct answers. And I've never asked this question to have someone quote this verse to me, where Jesus says it himself. He says, for this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. To testify to the truth. That is the fundamental mission, and that includes those other things, but I believe it also includes many more things than that everything that we have beginning with Genesis 1-1. Because in the scroll of the book is written of me, Jesus said. And ironically, Pilate is standing in front of the one. He says, what is truth? You remember that question? And he's talking to the very incarnation of truth himself. Let's go on to the next verse. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them, There is great reward. The word of God is more valuable than material wealth and more valuable than any experience we can have in this world. I believe we've lost this in the West, this understanding of the world. You think of all the many past leaders, if any of you like, reading Christian biographies, these leaders who gave their lives for the fact that we could stand here and have Bibles in our hands. I did some work with the Museum of the Bible, Last year, they were planning a, a, an exhibition in London, History of the English Bible. And I, I worked with them kind of coming. It's been put on hold now. But part of that work is we got to visit this little place in London. It was a small free church, basically, from the outside, you know, in a residential area in London. Uh, you'd walk past it. You wouldn't think anything of it. It's just a n- normal church, you know, kind of small congregation, nothing, nothing fancy going on. Um, underneath this church... This man had one of the largest private collections of Bibles in the world, Um, quite literally. So we were there. I got to hold a Tyndale Bible. Uh, He even had handwritten leaves from John Wycliffe's Bible. It's 13th century. These things are literally priceless. Um, And he just had them all in his office. He had John Bunyan's Bible down there. Um, Just absolutely priceless gems. And I remember just standing there holding some of these, these, thinking... You know, this, this is, for much part of English history, this was illegal. You know, people, you know, the man who translated this, he, he, he was burned at the stake for giving us this. You know, and now it's sort of a, almost an object <laughs> in, in this guy's room. And don't get me wrong, I collect Bibles too, so I'm not saying anything wrong with that. You can collect Bibles if you want to. But, <laughs> you know, it's just sort of, I was just kind of going off in my head about it. We need to have that same adoration and respect for the Word of God that makes us want to just open it up to the world you know, people understand what it is. We've almost got so much of it that we've become sort of common with it. We've let it, be, you know, we can choose our Bibles based on our binding, based on whether it's a journaling Bible or, a, you know, my son has a, a Lego brick Bible and there's all sorts of different things. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying at all. But I think just the, the extreme amount we have can sometimes have the effect that we, we forget what it is we're actually holding in our hands. It is the living Word of God. Let me just share with you a couple more illustrations and we will we'll finish up one more illustration that illustrates this point in the year 1800 in a rural Welsh countryside a young girl grew up in a small stone gray cottage from a poor family no father in the house he died when she was four every sunday this girl called mary she would walk 2 miles to the local chapel and she remembers being enthralled with the words the minister would read from the large leather bound book on the pulpit and after the service this young girl would go up to that pulpit and just stand there and look at the words on the Bible. However, she couldn't read, so she remembers being just standing there wishing that she could read for herself from this book on the pulpit. And then one sa- Sunday, the, the preacher announced that there would be a circulating school. That was an early Christian missionary to teach people to read and write. Um, again, Christianity is largely responsible for making Wales and England and much of the world a literary, literary nation. Um, And she she thought, right, that's it, now's my chance, I can go and learn to read. So she would rush through her chores and she would go to the schoolmaster's house about two miles away and she would learn to read. Any spare time she got, she would trek over to the farmhouse to read that Bible. At age 10, she was determined to get a copy of the Bible for herself. She set about doing every extra job she could for people around the village, sewing, milking the cows, doing all sorts of things. For six years, she saved until she finally had enough money. And then she heard of a man in a village 25 miles away who was selling Bibles. At the age of 16, she took her money, a small bit of food, and started off on the 50-mile round trip through the rocky Welsh countryside. Which this is, you know, probably you didn't really travel outside of your village much in these days. This is this is a massive issue, for, and particularly for a girl on her own. She finally made it after this trek. She had no shoes for this trek either. She wasn't rich enough to really have her own shoes um, for much of this. She finally made it to the village of Bala. And she found the house of the minister, Thomas Charles, who had these Bibles. She knocked on the door and she explained what had happened. But then tragically, he had to tell her that he'd already sold these Bibles. However, Charles was so impressed with her faith and determination to get a Bible that he arranged for her to stay in the village for an extra few days until he could get new Bibles brought to him. And when he had his new Bibles, he gave her three Bibles for the price of one. And the next morning, clutching her treasured possession, she started back on the 25-mile journey and she arrived home to her village to claps and cheers, and she was a local hero. Now, what's interesting about this story is not only the fact that this was one girl doing an amazing thing, that minister who sold her the Bible, Thomas Charles, he was, it touched him so much, this girl's determination to get the word of God, that he went on to found the Bible Society, the, as in you've all seen the blue, the Bible Society that distributes over 400 million Bibles every single year all started because of the motivation of one 16-year-old girl who went to get a Bible. Now, the Bible Society in Cambridge, they actually still have Mary Jones' Bible with her inscription on it. I'm hoping to get a a personal visit to view it uh, later on this year up in the Cambridge archives. Um, And she wrote a little song about the Word of God in there. It's It's amazing. But God can do that, just with one act of faith. You know, there's nothing extraordinary in the sense of complicated there. It's just faith making people do you know, to hear the word of god she was willing to go to those lengths she loved the word of god let's read the last uh, the last uh, verses 12 and 13 it says who can discern his errors declare me innocent from hidden faults keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression you see david here he looks at himself now in the light of the teachings of the word of god And he knows that his errors are probably even more than he could imagine. The word of God does this to us, doesn't it? It highlights our sin. It convicts us when we read it. And that's what it's supposed to do so that we can then confess our sins and learn and grow in our relationships with God. But notice he also says, keep me back from presumptuous sins. And these are the things that are dangerous. These are the things that we know are wrong, that we have spent time thinking over in our head, calculating when we may or may not commit this sin. Sometimes they're, you know, we, I see that you know, Christians are not immune to this. So, you know, I, I speak with a lot of Christians and in, a, in a culture when you know, the click of a finger is, any, anything is available through the click of a finger. These sins can be something that they ensnare you. They trap you up in a cycle of sin, confession, repentance, sin. And I I've counsel people that they never think they're going to be able to break out of this cycle. These are presumptuous sins. They are thinking about the next time they can do it. it it's the sin nature that sort of rails up. The only solution for this I believe, is the word of God and the power of the Spirit. And I've seen that happen in many people's lives. But David is saying here, keep me from these presumptuous sins. And We know David's life, don't we? He fell in that area. He committed a calculated sin in that area that he thought about, thought through for quite a lot, I'd imagine, and he fell. But here we see the heart of why David is called a man after God's own heart. He confesses that. These are sins done in a proud manner. These are sins where we say, no, God, I'm going to do it how I feel right now. He says, let them not have dominion over me because we know when a sin has dominion over us, we are basically putting ourselves back under slavery, which is the very reason that Jesus died to free us from. It's only the power of the Spirit and the Word of God that will get us through that. And then the last few words, you really have a a summation of the entire psalm. It's a prayer of submission, I believe, here in these words, as David is sort of crying out he says let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer you see in light of all that he said and done in light of the glory of god in creation the glory of god in his revealed word now next to such a glorious god david knew himself to be a sinner but he knew god to be a god who redeems and is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and quick to forgive in that sense and he offers this plea sort of of submission now to the wonderful will of God. And he says, my mouth and my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see, he knew it wasn't just the mouth, but it was the heart too. Those of us who have been in church for a long time, we know that we can say the right things, don't we? You can go to a prayer meeting, you can nod, you can say amen, you can speak about, yeah, our redemption and salvation. It's all wonderful stuff. But that doesn't actually mean too much in some respects. You know, We've had people in our church, I know personally, we've been, they could say everything right. You know, they could pray with sort of the emotion that you would, you would never dream of doubting that they were sincere. But yet they've fallen by the wayside and been caught in very, very severe sins um, to the point that they're no longer walking with Christ or if they were ever believers. These things are serious. It's the mouth and the heart because remember the Lord sees the heart. Okay, and that fact alone should cause us to examine ourselves continually in front of the word of God and throw ourselves onto the grace of God as David, I believe, is sort of doing here, as he you know, compares himself with a glorious God to who he is. And then he finishes off with these words, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, he ends on this glorious note with this threefold proclamation of God's character. God is Lord. The word there is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. The covenant-keeping God of Israel, because it's covenant. The whole Bible is a covenant, basically. It's a marriage document. You could call it that. It's a covenant and that's what it's based on. Then he says the rock. This speaks of God's strength, God's power, and as we talked about, that firm foundation. And then he says the redeemer. The word here is goel. If you've ever studied the book of Ruth, you'll be familiar with that term, the kinsman redeemer, the one who could free a relative from slavery and bankruptcy. This is referring to Christ's aspect as the ultimate redeemer, the one who would free us from slavery. What he is summing up in this psalm here is all these attributes of God, The Lord God, the mighty creator, the wonderful covenant-keeping God of Israel, the rock, the firm foundation, that God is also the same God who is that loving, intimate, redeeming creator that came to this earth to die for us and redeem us to himself, setting us free. All of that, in those just three little words, I believe, are in David's mind. And he says, in light of all this, let my words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to him. That is his desire, and that is why I believe David is called a man after God's own heart. In spite of all his failings, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in you. I'm just going to share with you one very short, final illustration, and then we'll close in prayer. Many of you have probably heard of the great missionary explorer, David Livingstone. He spent most of his life in Africa exploring and taking the gospel to many different people. Um, He was the one who first laid eyes on not first laid eyes on me, he was the first westerner to lay eyes on Vic- what we call Victoria Falls it was david livingstone who named it victoria falls in honor of um, queen victoria at the time um, it said in the last days of his life his skin was hard like leather he'd been sort of burnt under the african sun and have sunscreen in those days he was blind in one eye for that he got sort of got it poked out going through the un- the, the bush there he was lame in one arm, he got mauled by a lion when he was trying to save a village from lions that were, that were attacking them. He got bit by a lion on one arm. Um, he was so sick he couldn't walk and his, companion, his travelling companions used to carry him around in a hammock but he was still so determined, we must get to the next village, we must get to the next village to tell them about the gospel and to explore these unreached parts of the earth at that time. Eventually he became so weak that he could not go on and they made him a hut with a bed in it And they went to put him down, and they lay him on a bed, and he said to them, no, no, put me on my knees, put me on my knees. So they put him on his knees by his bed, and he began to pray, which is what he'd done every night for his entire life, pretty much. They left him, they gave him privacy. And then as morning came, and they said, you know, where is he? We need to get going. They went into his house, and they, they saw that he was still on his knees by his bed. But as they went over to him, they realized that he had, in fact, died during that night. You see, I just find this amazing. He died as he lived, in communion with his God. He died on his knees in prayer. And he was so respected by, by the African community he ministered to that when his body was flown back to England, they buried him in Westminster Abbey, they, the, they, the people he was working with in Africa, they said, we want to keep his heart. Now, this might sound unusual to us, but they said, we, we want his heart here because his heart was in Africa. That, that was where he was called. That was where God had his heart, basically. And so they took his heart and they buried it under one of his favorite trees in Africa. And I just find that very, very challenging and powerful because this man who was called to Africa because his God had his heart and Africa ended up with his heart. And you read some of the stories of David Livingstone and they're amazing. But let me just phrase this back to us as a challenge, as a question. Where are our hearts? His heart was buried where God had called him. What is it that fills our hearts? And what is God calling our hearts to do? That is something we all need to to think about. And as the psalmist says here, we should desire that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts are acceptable to God. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Lord, I thank you also for these great servants who have gone before us that we can learn from, Lord God. But I just pray now, I pray for this congregation, for our body, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would just encourage us and stir us up, Lord. That we would be passionate for living for you in this world. That you would give us the power to do this by your spirit, Lord God. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.